0: According to my guest today, the book of Job, a book that we often don't know what to do with, is ultimately focused on answering one simple question. Are we truly, deeply safe with God? How each of us answers that question for ourselves stands at the heart of what it means to trust God and cherish Him above all else. As Christians, how should we respond when we face a Job-like ordeal, suffering that is so painful? so inexplicable, so seemingly pointless that we're tempted to curse God. In our interview today, I'm talking with Eric Ortland. Eric is a lecturer in Old Testament and Biblical Hebrew at Oak Hill College in London, and is the author of Suffering Wisely and Well, The Grief of Job and the Grace of God from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So, Eric, the title of your book is Suffering Wisely and Well, and uh, presumably you you pick those two words, wisely and well, intentionally, and I think most of us, when we think about suffering, we have a sense for why uh, and what it would mean to suffer well. That's kind of a common idea. It's a common phrase. It's hard to do, uh, but it, it's something that we understand. But I wonder if the idea of suffering wisely is a bit more foreign, a little bit less obvious to us. So I wonder if you could kind of explain, what what do you mean when you say we need to suffer wisely? What might that entail?
1: Sure. That, that, that's really a great question. Um, the, the The title for the book is meant to be interesting and meant to grab attention. And it's meant to be a setup for the book of Job, which is the thing I deeply, deeply wanted to talk about. Mm. Uh, when I started teaching, I had I knew nothing about Job, and I had to start teaching it. I expected the book to be helpful. I did not expect to be so profoundly pastorally relevant to so many people. Mm. And we don't preach on it very much. I've never heard a sermon series on Job. I don't know if you have, but it doesn't. Yeah. It just doesn't seem to be in the water in our you know. Wh- why do you think that culture. is? Why do you think that is, Eric? Oh, oh, I think Job is just the most difficult book in the Old Testament to interpret. It is so long, the debate between Job and his friends goes nowhere. I mean, nowhere. I mean, I find it exhausting to read. By the time it's not even halfway done, I just want them to be quiet. I want God to talk, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, And it is difficult to interpret what God says. I think what God says is clear, and I think it was clear to Job. But it's not easy to make... Sense out of why it's so meaningful to Job, mm. what God says at the end of the book. So it's really not easy. Um, one of the profound thing, one of the things that surprised me that I did not see until I had to teach the book and then I would talk with people about it afterwards and be connecting and resonating with them in all kinds of ways and they didn't know the book well. So there was this, you know, dawning surprise for them was that um, the book of Job comp- complicates our usual explanations for why we suffer in Western, you know, 21st century evangelical culture. I think when suffering happens, we tend to explain that in terms of uh, you've sinned in some way or God is growing you spiritually. And both of those explanations are utterly biblical and so helpful and relevant, and we, we should absolutely remember them. But the book of Job examines Uh, A case of profound suffering, and it had nothing to do with any sin in Job's life. Not even the accuser can find anything to accuse Job of. That's pretty... If there had been something in Job that could have explained, you know, the accuser would have found it. He doesn't. And strange as it might sound, I don't think God is trying to grow Job spiritually, and I'm happy to talk about that more if you'd like. But I I wanted to call it suffering wisely and well, because uh, part of the reason everything looks different after I read the book of Job is it opens up this other category of, of sometime God allows really terrible pain in our lives. And he's not smacking us or mad at us or letting our past come back to haunt us. And he's not trying to teach us a lesson. And, and although it doesn't resolve everything, there's an odd comfort to knowing God, God's not trying to grow me up at all, whatever else is going on. I was uh, teaching in Canada once and a student raised their hand and said, my mother is a job this is my mother's story. And I said, how often did your mother's Christian friends say, you're either doing something wrong, and as soon as you you you, you stop doing that wrong thing, the pain will stop, or God is trying to teach you something. And he said, oh yeah, they told, him, they told her that all the time. And I said, was that what it was? And he thought for a moment, and then he said, no, that just wasn't it. He knew the normal explanations, which are perfectly valid and biblical on their own, didn't apply, but he didn't have that other third category. Mm. So if if uh, if we can suffer more, both well and more wisely, on the basis of the Book of Job, that would be a good
0: thing. Yeah. So I want to get in, get into that uh, core idea that you're drawing out in this book about the Book of Job and how it applies to our suffering. That that, that there is this third category of suffering that that, in a certain sense, doesn't have a clear purpose in our lives. Uh, it just it's happening, and and we'll get into why God would allow that to happen. Uh, mm. But uh, why would you say that that second category, I think many of us Christians, we sort of have uh, maybe is more in the air today that there it can be very unhelpful to just point to someone's sin and say, hey, this you must have done something wrong. We see that clearly condemned in the book of Job, and uh, so we're quick to try to avoid that. I actually want to come back to that in a minute, because you do make a point of saying uh, that that sometimes is what's going on in our lives. Mm. Uh, mm. But why would that second category, the idea of God growing us in some way, why is that not always an option? It seems like, I guess our normal assumption would be that maybe if I don't understand, there is a sense in which, though, all suffering is meant to grow me in my faith in God, grow me in my trust of who He is. So so what are you saying there? Yeah, th- th- thank you for that question. Um,
1: doubtless God is at work all the time to grow us in beautiful ways. And through Job's ordeal, he definitely comes to a deeper knowledge of God, a deeper intimacy with God, and satisfaction and comfort in him. Almost the last thing he says is, now my eye sees you. Mm-hmm. He's just taken up in God. What, what I mean more is that um, the passages in Romans 5 and James 1 that list different fruit of the Spirit and Christian virtues that suffering gives us, like endurance and perseverance and character and whatnot, um, none of those apply in a in a job like ordeal. There are two reasons why they, they just do not apply when you're in a situation where, where you're in Job's story and you're living his story out in in some significant way. The first is that Job is already a mature believer. Uh, the first verse in the book uses Old Testament wisdom language to talk about Christian maturity, not sinlessness. Job will be the first to admit that that he still needs forgiveness. But, but there's, no, there's no level of immaturity in Job where sin is still the dominant pattern, where he's lacking some virtue that God needs to grow him up in. He already has it. Secondly, the whole terms of the ordeal are, does Job love God for God or for some reason secondary to God? Now, this is the old covenant, so God's covenant relationship with his people is external and financial and agricultural and big families and so on. Um... And so that's what Job loses, but but the terms of the ordeal are if God puts Job in a position where he ha- he has every earthly reason to give up on God, where the only reason he has to stay loyal to God is God and God himself, because it's costing him everything else. Will Job stick with God or not? And I think that's spiritually and pastorally significant in just, in all, all kinds of ways, just hugely significant. Um, but... It, it, if Job were to benefit spiritually from his ordeal in some way, if he were a more mature Christian, if, if all the virtue, if, if character and hope and faith and love were more his by the end of that ordeal... Then the accuser could always turn around and say, well, of course, Job says he loves you. Look at, look at the spiritual virtues that he's benefiting mm. from. Because we are happier when we have those fruit of the Spirit more in our lives, right? It makes our life better. Job cannot benefit from his ordeal in any way whatsoever except a deep, deeper intimacy with God. Mm. And if Job gets any other benefit out of it, the accuser can always turn around and say, well, he says he loves you, but what he really loves is this thing over here. Yeah. So what I find so... And I think this is the only book in the canon that explores this. What I find so revelatory is there is a peculiar kind... I I remember I, I was at a church once talking about Psalms of Lament, which is not... the. It's close to the book of Job, but not the same thing. And a person raised their hand and said... That's what God let happen to me, that happened to me, and I didn't have a category for it. But now I get, like, what that is and what God wants for me and so on. Um, So so I felt an urgency about this because God is going to be baptizing people in Job-like ordeals. They may not know what it is, but the peculiar quality of a Job-like ordeal is one in which you're not going to benefit from it in any way, except God is, the Lord Jesus is going to be all-sufficient for you in a way he never was before. Mm.
0: And you made a comment there that this is something that um, uh, we we don't have a category for this kind of explanation, so to speak, for our suffering. And yet you also know in the book, and and I think we all intuitively have a sense for this, that Job's story of suffering, that his type of suffering, severe Mm. and yet kind of unexplained and seemingly Mm. pointless, is quite Mm. common. Uh, We've all experienced it, or we will at some point, and we know people who have. So why is it that... Although this is a common experience for humanity, we nevertheless, as Christians, don't have a category for it.
1: Yes. Oh, that's a great question. I really like how you described that Job-like ordeal. The first chapter of the book, I'm trying to distinguish in categories different kinds of suffering, like suffering for sin or persecuted for your faith or something like that. And the way I'd want to distinguish this peculiar chapter in our lives that God sometimes allows, is that the suffering is extreme, you can't bear it, and it's inexplicable, it just does not make sense, and you don't seem to be getting anything out. So that, that's exactly the right way to kind cat- of, why don't we know about it? I'm not sure, I'm not sure. It's, I, I think our, 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 I think the difficulty of the book of Job and our ignorance of it is, is probably part of it. It is also just a really difficult sort of profound, difficult thing to talk about, um... The, the, the suffering uh, in order to grow spiritually, that kind of makes sense intuitively. When I was young, I would try to do push-ups, and they hurt, <laughs> and they were supposed to. That's how you're building your shoulders. You're it saying makes they, sense. they don't
0: hurt anymore? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm saying by, I've given up by now. I just don't <laughs> do them at all. I'm too old. Um, but to suffer to suffer uselessly. "Quote unquote." When I say that in the book, I put it in quotes because it's very not, not very much not useless. It's the salvation of our souls. God is fitting us for eternity in this, but to suffer you, where we get nothing out of it, and where in a way it's never resolved, Job never learned what we learned in chapter one. He learns by the end that God is not his enemy, and God doesn't regard him as his enemy. But he never got an explanation. That is, there is something about our minds that reject that. We don't like persistent, unresolved, unexplained yeah. things in our lives. It's it's hard to even think about.
0: So that that was another interesting point that I wanted to, to dig into. It seems like a big part of our struggle uh, with that kind of suffering is that we, we want to understand the purpose. We want to to understand what God intends, what good is going to come out of that. Um and yet, you write uh, in your book, an essential element of a job-like ordeal is permanent ignorance. Uh, and this might be a bit speculative, but I wonder if you see any connections here. Uh, what do you think is God's goal of putting us through suffering that we can't understand? Why would He do that? Is is there a reason that we could maybe suss out of Scripture for why He doesn't He hides that that understanding from us?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really great. Qu- Great question, Matt. Um, I think an essential, permanent in- ignorance is an essential part of a job-like ordeal. Because if Job knows what's really going on, then the results of the do- ordeal would be in doubt. The accuser could always say, "Well, yeah, of course, Job says that, but you told him what was happening." It has to look like look to Job as if God has turned on him for no reason, out of nowhere. That's how it has. To, that's not what happens. And and that's a really. Helpful in and of itself. That that there are times when it will, will where you'll be thinking, I treat my kids better than my heavenly Father treats me. How incompetent is he? You know. And, and the Book of Job is helping us see how God really is is not how He appears. His heart toward you is unchanged. Um. Why God allows the peculiar the the, the sense of mystery and like, ah, oh, did I make God mad somehow, or why won't He tell me, or what is going? That deepens the pain. I think the reason why God allows Job-like ordeals, the reason why he puts us in a position where it really starts to cost us everything to stay a Christian, where we start losing secondary blessings is he is sealing our souls for eternity. He's preparing us for heaven. I benefit from being a Christian in ways secondary to and external to the forgiveness of my sins and the gift of eternal life. I have a nice wife and a nice job and nice kids. I would not have those if the Holy Spirit hadn't been operative in my life for many years. But if I had to bury my, one of my kids, and, and this is terrifying. I don't, I don't ask this lightly. This is terrifying to me. Maybe that's another reason why we don't know Job so well. It's so uncomfortable. Mm, yeah. But if I had to bury one of my kids and I show up to for church the next Sunday and I'm weeping and I'm in sackcloth, would I be just as enthusiastic about worshiping God for who he is in himself? Or would it come out that really what I liked was the secondary blessings God gave me? Mm. If, if the answer is actually what Eric really likes, he says he loves God, but what he really likes is the nice life, then I'm going to be bored in heaven because the whole, what it means for heaven to be heaven is that all secondary earthly blessings have fallen away and God is all in all. I'm not going to be married to my wife in heaven. We won't, be, we won't marry or be given in marriage. She will always be special to me, but that's part of this age. So if I have have to bury my spouse and all of a sudden I lose all interest in being a Christian, I'm proving what my motives are for being a Christian in the first place. Mm. And because God loves us and because he he, he is happily determined to make us utterly happy, unspeakably happy forever, he he will be mostly really generous with secondary blessings. But he reserves the right temporarily to interrupt his policy of generosity and secondary blessings and give us a chance to prove, not theoretically, but in sackcloth and ashes, that we really love God for God. Because if we can't do that, we're going to be bored in heaven. The, the whole point to the eschaton is loving God for himself as he... In, in a way... So Matt, what I'm trying to say is that at the end of the day, the book of Job is about the all-sufficiency of knowing Yahweh. Mm. To, to take that beautiful phrase from Philippians 3, and it's about God working it into our souls... So that, it, I mean, it's good to say when your life is going pretty well, I love God more than all the blessings. But occasionally, sooner or later, in some way, God will paint us into a corner and give us an opportunity to say it when it's not theoretical anymore. And he has to. If he loves us, he's, it's going to happen somehow.
0: Yeah. And and that is, as you say, such a beautiful vision. And that is our that is the hope to which we, we long for. Uh, however, it is scary to think about that because I think we all wonder... Uh, how would I respond in that we, And we can't really fully very know. very scary. Uh, one other question I had, one other, th- other passage that came to mind when I thought about this idea of um, our kind of inherent nature, our desire to want to understand mm. um, was going back. And I, I'm curious if you see this here or if this is uh, something a little off base, going mm-hmm. back to Genesis three, where we see Adam and Eve in this garden that God created and um before them is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the uh, pat mm. the the text says that uh, Eve, before she took the fruit, she had this she saw that the fruit was desirable to make one wise, to give her mm. this understanding that God had, for some reason, kind of uh, didn't want them to have about good and evil. Um, is do you ever ever seen a connection there between uh, this desire to understand that God reserves uh, holds back from his people sometimes? and something that was going on back in the garden.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting connection to make. I do think there's something there, that um, submitting to permanent ignorance in a Job-like ordeal and telling God, telling God, you can ruin my life, and you don't have to explain yourself to me, and I'll stay, I'll stay loyal to you anyway, just because of who you are. That lets God be God. So, so Matt, I, I, I say at one point in the book, if you, I, I, I won't, this is a terrible example, so I, I won't use you, but, but if um, a drunk driver runs over one of my kids and they never call or write or apologize or stop drinking or go to AA, I would not remain friends with that person. Hmm. I would sever that. I would sever my relationship. But, but if God does not cause, and, and I, I want to be clear about that, God did not kill Job's children. He allowed it. And he takes responsibility for it, but he was not the direct cause of Job's suffering.
0: God is Job's shepherd, not his torturer. What would you say to the Christian listening who says that's a distinction without a difference? Um, I, I, well, I, I
1: would say I would say the difference is that that w- when. God allows something terrible to happen and does not explain himself to you, and you stay friends with him anyway, you are showing that you're treating him like God and not just like another human relationship with, with the give and take of it. I think that's the difference. It's only an imperfect analogy. And if any of the dear listeners who are loved of God are listening to this and you, it's it's hard for you to listen to this, please only take it as an analogy. Mm. When I talk about going through a Job-like ordeal, I do not mean that our our... Job-like ordeal will be as intense or extensive as Job's was. I'm not... Everything in Job's life goes wrong. Usually with um, less heroic saints like me, it's like one thing that goes... Just so that's clear. Mm. And, And for whatever it's worth, I get this... Job should not have made it to the end of the book. He should have cursed God. And there are a number of points where I think, oh man, he's gonna fall over the cliff edge and he's gonna, and he doesn't. And there are a couple of points where Job himself seems to be surprised by the things he's saying. And as we wonder about what we would say if we were in that position, and it's not bad for us to be scared about that. God, the Holy Spirit himself is going to be enabling us to stay a Christian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I, when I talk about a Job-like ordeal, please keep that in mind. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think there is a connection to letting God be
0: God which means we won't know everything. Hmm. I wonder sometimes, as I've thought about the book of Job and I was reading your book in particular, um, do you think that Christians who have a robust belief and trust in the sovereignty of God, who, who who would read the book of Job and never once feel like they'd be tempted to sort of say, God's not in control about this. They, they would say, no, I know God's in control over my suffering. But could it be maybe uniquely difficult or could there be a unique temptation for people in that position to, because we believe God's in control, we, we also have this sense that then there must be a purpose for this. And so mm. we, we want to know what that purpose is. Uh, do you, you know what I'm asking? And do you ever sense that among uh, yourself sure. or others? Sure. Absolutely. It's, it's,
1: yeah. I think God has put something in the human mind that we want to understand what's going on around us. That's part of being in his image. It's not bad in itself. Um, I do think a job like ordeal has a purpose. it's he's saving our souls. It just doesn't have an immediate sort of payoff a, a mm-hmm. quick, easy resolution jo- Job gets an answer that satisfies him, but he doesn't get an explanation and he never does so so it's in the book, I'll say purposeless suffering in quotations because it's not really purposeless. um. And yes, if you ha- and Job retains a very strong doctrine of God's sovereignty. In fact, the only doctrine he gives up is God's goodness. He continues to believe everything he used to about God. It's just, I'm not safe with this person anymore. A- and yes, if you have a healthy and developed view of of God's fatherly providence over the the, the minuscule details of your life, then it's it can be easier than a Job-like ordeal can hurt more because you're convinced there must be a reason and why isn't mm. God
0: telling you? Because th- that is probably one of the dominant reasons why some people who who would reject a kind of all-encompassing doctrine of God's sovereignty or good providence mm. w- would, would do that. They would say, I, I just can't believe in a God who would allow so much terrible suffering. And so mm. it's easier for me to just sort of say, God's in control of the big things, but there are certain things that happen that that he doesn't desire, that he hasn't caused in any any real sense and and sure. are kind of beyond his power. Sure. And,
1: uh, you know, I, I've had friends say that to me. I do disagree with that biblically and theologically. There are good reasons against that. I, I feel compassion for people who say that because they really are struggling. And I think behind that question is... Am I utterly, absolutely, deeply safe with God all the time, no matter what? Mm. No matter what, that can be a hard question to answer. Um, you know, we, we've all been wrestling with. You know, I'm a dad, so these are the analogies I, I tend to think of. But we've we've all been wrestling with our kids, and then we accidentally like bonk them on the head or something, and they cry, and we say, "Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry." Um, and your kid still wrestles with you, but, but there's just always that sense of like, oh, I don't want things to get too rough. Mm. And it gets way, way, way too rough in the Book of Job. Am I deeply safe with God? Who will allow those kinds of things to happen to me? And, the, and, and I never wanna push someone who, through that abstract theological question, is actually in a way saying, I'm not utterly safe with God. I'd rather be in the hands of fate or chance or randomness or the devil I'd want to try to find a way to say you are you are you are utterly, aboundingly safe, even in the midst of tragedy. Because
0: mm-hmm. it's almost like they would rather believe in a God who is at every turn trying to, uh, in their mind, do us good. And even if His power mm-hmm. is limited because of mm-hmm. the, the desire to protect our freedom or or what have you, it's, mm-hmm. it almost feels safer to have a God who nevertheless is trying to protect us at all times, versus a God who willingly, knowingly subjects us to some of the suffering that we face. It, 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 yes, it
1: is. But, it, you know, in a way... Oh, gosh, I, I don't want to be offensive to any Christians listening to this, but in a way, that's a broken cistern. There's no real comfort there to say, um, yeah, my Heavenly Father means well, but he just wasn't that involved in that situation. And I was in, in, with my students here on Monday, we were going through the uh, David census in 2 Samuel 24 and the plague that happens. It's amazing what David says. It's a sobering chapter. We talked about why David's sin is so awful. And God essentially says to him, tell me how you want the people of God to die. The three options that God lists for David in that chapter will all spell the end for Israel. And, and David begins by asking for forgiveness, and it looks as if God says, no, you're not forgiven. Tell me how you want the nation to die. It's terrifying. Mm. And David says, okay, it's it's famine, war, or plague, and in David's mind, the plague would have come directly for God from God. So he asked for the plague. He says, let me fall into the hands of God, not the hands of man, even if God's mad at me. It's an amazingly faithful thing to do, to say I'd rather be in God's hands than randomness or the devil. Um So I would feel deep sympathy for someone who tried to keep God at arm's length because they've suffered, but there's no real comfort there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that maybe is a good segue into another big uh, topic that the book of Job gives us help with, and that is uh, how to be good friends, good Christian Mm. friends to those who are suffering in a situation Uh, like Job's. Mm. Uh, And so I I do wonder if you could just broadly, what does the story of Job teach us about the danger of being bad friends uh, to Mm. those who are suffering? Mm.
1: Oh, great question. Yeah, for all the complexities and difficulties of the book of Job, this is pretty easy, actually, and I think the book of Job really worries about this. This seems to be uh, on the agenda for a lot of, uh, of the book. The reason not to be bad, there's so many reasons... Uh, not to be a bad friend and blame someone and say there must have been something that you did. Um, The first is you're going to torture someone that God is incredibly proud of. Imagine how Job deeply loves God. He is resigned to the death of his children, but the thought that God and he are not friends— that drives him up the wall, and it's all he talks about. He never once asks for his blessing. And then imagine how it felt for him to be told by trusted friends, God is so mad at you, and he has good reason to. That, that would have broken him inside. All Job wants is to be friends with God again. Um, the second reason is you will be unintentionally advancing the devil's agenda for that person. And the reason I say that is, if Job gives it gives in to the friend's advice and invents a sin to confess, so that God can restore him and give the blessed life back, then Job is proving that he values a blessed life more than integrity with God, which is what the devil was trying to prove. Hmm. So believe, like telling people they might have sinned, you might be playing into the devil's hands with them. And the third reason is God will get really mad at you. <laughs> um, God, God says, my anger burns against the life has and the three friends, and they have to do seven sacrifices. One, one of the beautiful, one of the reasons you are safe with God is that when God allows, he does not cause, but he does allow something really terrible, and other Christians try to help, and they just torture you. God really cares about that. That matters to him. And there's coming a time when he will publicly vindicate you because you really matter to him. Um, yeah, Job has to do seven sacrifices. Normally only one is required. I think that means God is really angry over what the friends have done. Mm. So we need... Interesting. We need, there is a time to say, is this God's gentle way of bringing some... Pa- have you been leading a double life? You know, there's a time to say that. But we have to be very careful with heroes, with heroes. And there are a lot of heroes listening to this podcast right now who don't think they are and who don't know that they are, but they are for the simple reason that they're not giving up on God. That's how you qualify for heroic Job-like faith in the book. That's it. God sets the bar pretty low. And I think in a way, if I can put it this way, I think that's heroic in God's eyes. And God really cares
0: when other people torture people that he thinks are heroes. Mm. So why do you think it is that we're so often, uh, even as Christians and often seemingly with good intentions, we can do and say unhelpful things in trying to explain the suffering of others around us? Uh, Why is that such uh, a common temptation that I think we all have felt uh, that struggle with?
1: Of course, of course. The answer is very simple. I'm a Pharisee. You, you, you know the, the mantra in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Anonymous, you know, my name's Eric, I'm alcohol. So yeah. my name's Eric, I am a Pharisee. I am a recovering <laughs> Pharisee. I've had a good 10 seconds, and now I'm going to revert back to Phariseeism. And I'm being a little facetious when I say that. But, but Job, yeah, th- 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 there's more than one way to approach that very important question, Matt. W- one way to do it is this. Job has a theology of grace. He says the Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away he doesn't see the rewards for obedience as wages that he is owed. He sees it as a gift. The friends do not see it that way. The friends see the blessed life that comes from obedience, and obedience does give blessing. You really do reap what you sow, and the Book of Job doesn't deny that. But the friends see those those blessings, the, re- the the thing that you reap when you sow obedience, as something God has to give you that you can enjoy on your own and be proud about. Yeah. Um, they... They, te- they tend to have a more distant God, and I think they have a Pelagian view of uh, repentance. That is to say that you kind of... You, the friend's view of repentance is not the particle throwing himself on his face and saying, I don't deserve anything from you. I get the sense from the friends that they think of repentance as you clean yourself up and work your way back into God's favor, and God recognizes that and gives you something that is your right, that you're owed, you know. Um, against that background... The thought that uh, God might take away their blessed life for no reason, even when they've done nothing wrong, is deeply threatening and terrifying to them. The, the friends are thinking, do you mean I could serve God so scrupulously and it would all be for nothing? God would just take it away? And they're thinking, well, why am I in a relationship with God at all in the first place? Mm, yeah. What I'm try- they, they tend to speak of the rewards for obedience as payment, and they don't give... Uh, any indication that they're interested in God outside of that. The more they talk, the less they talk about God. They just talk about how blessed it is to be obedient, Uh, the blessings of righteousness. So there's a lot going on in in your question. I I think the temptation to be a friend of Job is that the the legalistic bent of our hearts. And um, it's tempting to blame a Job because it's a way to insulate yourself from their pain. Because as the friends say, you must have done something to deserve it. Because they haven't done anything to deserve it, then Job's tragedy will never happen to them. On the other hand, if Job might suffer for no reason, then what happens to Job might happen to them, and that is scary.
0: Uh, That's another point that you draw out that I really wanted to to dig into a little bit. Uh, You have this fascinating quote. You write, The temptation to comfort ourselves in the midst of someone else's suffering is so sneaky that we must never stop asking ourselves when talking to a suffering friend, the thing I'm about to say, who am I trying to make feel better, my friend or myself? Help us understand that. Unpack that. You're getting yeah. at something really deep and in some ways insidious in our hearts yeah. when we're trying to seemingly help someone else.
1: Yes, yes. So, so the temptation is so sneaky. Um, I remember uh, I was on staff at a church in Chicago and a woman was going through a divorce and she would just come to church in tears every week every week. I remember there's a uh, dear, saintly, Job-like lady in my church in Canada, and she was a Job, and she had really suffered. And and there was no self-pity in her, but she would come to church and she would weep. And I remember seeing her, I I would talk with her and pray with her and be her friend. I remember seeing her across the way once, and she was talking with someone. I thought, I I just don't want to talk to her right now. It's just painful to be around her. It's painful to be around pain. And I'm ashamed of myself for that. That was really not, that is not how Jesus is with us or with me. I was not being very Christ-like when I did that. But it is painful to be around pain. It's even more painful when there is nothing you can say. It is less painful and less troubling and less disturbing when you say, I remember I was in the hospital once and a guy was coming in with a smoker's cough and the doctor said, as soon as you quit the cigarettes, that horrible hacking cough will go away. It is so comforting to be able to say, as soon yeah. as you stop, whatever <laughs> it is you did. And it comforts you, it comforts you to sit with someone without blaming them, to be quiet and sit with them and basically say, let me wait with you for God to restore you because he will sooner or later. You're, this, this is only one chapter in your life. That hurts. That is difficult. Um, And it's tempting because if we say, um, as soon as you you confess your sin, you must have done something wrong to deserve this, we're putting ourselves in a morally superior position. We're both saying, this will never happen to me because I haven't sinned that way. And we're saying, I'm better than you. And that is so sneaky. That is so sneaky. And who am I trying to... It's not going to comfort my friend. It's going to make me feel better because it's going to insulate me from their pain.
0: Mm. And I'm struck that sometimes we don't even need to actually say that to our suffering friend. Maybe mm. we have the the uh, the wisdom to not tell that, that woman, hey, maybe you should have thought about this when you got married the first mm. time. But we might be thinking that to ourselves and kind of consoling mm. ourselves that, hey, that's not going to happen to me. I, I, that's, mm. God is never going to allow that in my life. Mm.
1: Mm. It's a deeply unchristlike attitude. Jesus doesn't come near to us when we're weeping, and say, well, you know, doesn't wag his finger and nag us. If he needs to confront us in some way, he will in his own gracious way, but he never nags us or wags his finger or gives us advice or mm, something.
0: Yeah. So another thing that you argue for, uh, as an important theme in the book of Job is this idea of God's defeat of evil, his conquering of evil in the world, which does connect in some way to, uh, the suffering that we sometimes face. And, uh, as I thought about that, it's a theme that um, maybe we, we've we all kind of sensed is present in Job to some extent, but it doesn't feel like a very significant part of the book of Job to us. We don't really see um, this idea of God kind of cursing Satan or defeating Satan in all these accusations that he's leveling. He kind of disappears from the picture by the end of the book. Mm. Uh, and yet you argue this is an important point uh, from the book of Job. So could you unpack that for us a little bit?
1: Yes, thank you for asking me that. And I'm gonna to try to remain calm uh, as I talk about this, because I tend to get irritable reader syndrome uh, when I talk about this. Um, it's it's common in English-speaking evangelical circles to see Leviathan as a crocodile. It's understandable if you read the physical description. It makes the Book of Job deeply unsatisfying, mm. deeply unsatisfying for God to say, I can kill a crocodile. I mean, honestly, <laughs> who, who cares, who cares? And it's, not, it's just not true to the Old Testament context. Ancient Israelites, and I, it's taken me a long time to see this, map, but ancient Israelite, the word cosmology means your, your picture of the world and the universe. Ancient Israelites would have had a more complicated and wiser, even though they were primitive scientifically, they were wiser about their cosmology spiritually. It can be easy for modern-day Western Christians to have God on his throne in eternity and created empirical reality obeying impersonal scientific laws. And that's the world, you know? And in the Old Testament and in other cult, you know, African Christians will pick up on this right away. They're just wiser than we are. They will have a kind of middle-tier supernatural, uh, you know, angels and demons and Michael in the Book of Daniel going to fight the Prince of Persia or whoever it is. And the weird, you know, the pestilence that walks at night in Psalm 91. All, all all that, whatever all ex-
0: passages that we don't know what to do with. We kind of just... All, yeah.
1: All the passages we don't know what to do with, the powers and principalities and all that, um, they would have a, a very healthy developed category for kind of mid-level supernatural powers. And the book of Job is just so much more satisfying when you just keep that in mind, that that's the biblical worldview, and it's the true one. It's so much more satisfying when you keep in mind Leviathan is mentioned elsewhere. It's never a crocodile. It's always a supernatural monster. And it's an appropriate symbol for chaos and evil that is bigger than human beings, but not bigger than God. So when God says, can you fill Leviathan's side with spears or, you know, get out your sword and, and, and kill Behemoth, he's speaking in an ancient Semitic way to say, Job, I know how much you have suffered. In fact, I see better than you how you've suffered. You thought I just clobbered you for no reason because I was a bully. Actually, you've been caught up in a war in heaven. Hmm. I'm the only person who sees the full dimension of your suffering, and I tolerate that evil for now, but there is coming a time when I'm going to unsheath my sword and scour every last bit of evil from my creation. And 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 I like to think that we're going to get a front row seat to see that as the first day day one of eternity. <laughs> mm. So so what I, I the urgency I feel here is that I think what was obvious to Job about God's speech about Leviathan is not obvious to us because of our cultural distance. But it's a very simple point you could see it in the Bible and everything just looks better and happier in a, God doesn't explain himself but he's he's essentially saying to job i see the problem more clearly than you do i see what's wrong with my world i see what happened to you i tolerate it for now i won't forever will you trust me in the meantime hmm. um and that's a profound answer that is it's so it's so helpful for me to think as a christian um part of what god god is at work in the world preaching the gospel and the Holy Spirit is at work building the church and forgiving sins and so on. And part of what, not maybe not the main thing, but part of what he's doing is, is defeating and fighting and driving back the powers of darkness and saving people who've been taken captive. Um, and engage, Christopher Ash in his, his beautiful commentary on Job says, Every Christian should wake up every morning and say, A deep, dark, spiritual battle is being fought over me today. Um, so that whole dimension of created reality that I can't see directly—that's not bigger than God, but is still there—I don't, I just don't, I don't have a very well-developed category for that. Yeah, but I should.
0: Yeah, and that leads right into the ending of the Book of Job, which you call one of the most joyful interludes in the entire Bible. Why do you say that? Uh, I don't know how to say it.
1: Every time I try to get at this. I'm unsatisfied with how I have expressed it. So you will just have to open up Job Job 41 and ask the Holy Spirit to help you. What amazes me, what what what, I start stumbling around my words is not just that God says, Job, I'm going to kill Leviathan one day and this suffering will stop. That's profound and beautiful in itself. He goes on to describe the monster at length and he does so in a... It's obviously hard to tell how somebody said something, the tone with which they said something in an ancient written text, but God sounds anything but defensive or morose or apologetic or worried. He sounds happy. In verse 12, he even talks about Leviathan's goodly frame or gracious form. You can translate that different ways. Good translation. It's like he's, he's saying, Job, look out at the sea. I want to show you something. And this bubbling, writhing, massive chaos rises to the front. To to the surface. And Job knows the name Leviathan, but he has never seen it up close. And Mm. God puts his arm around Job and says, Job, look at those claws. Look at those fangs that fire and those tentacles and those (laughs) scales. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I can't wait for the day that I unsheath my sword and finally defeat. Oh, I cannot wait for that day. God sounds so happy and joyful as he describes Leviathan. It cannot be because Leviathan is good, because everything he says about Leviathan is terrifying. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But he sounds, uh, the mere promise that God will defeat all evil, that's enough but for God to describe it so joyfully. Wh- one way to say this is that the most real, the person who is most realistic about what still needs to be redeemed in his creation is the one person who describes it the most joyfully. Mm. It, I get the strong sense that God can look Leviathan square in the eyes and see deeply that deeper spiritual evil that we only have a faint glimmer of, and he is still so happy that the sun rose this morning. Not even Leviathan can diminish God's joy in creation. So... So I'm dimly aware of the horrors that have happened today, Matt. I mean, children have been abused today and people have been trafficked and people had dementia have dementia today, all the, all those things, all those things. I'm vaguely aware of some of that going on. God sees all of it, and he is still so and he is still so happy to give us the gift called today, and it's not because he's unrealistic or viewing the world through rose-colored glasses. So if that's true, then Christian, I must be able to be utterly realistic about the world and be utterly joyful about an unsafe world before the redemption of all things. Hmm. That must be possible. I'm not sure I know how, but it must be possible, Hmm. so.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Maybe as a final question, Eric, uh, is there a... Uh, a favorite verse or passage in the book of Job uh, that you that you have. I wonder if you could read that for us, and then just briefly comment on why it's your favorite.
1: Sure, sure. I, I, I mean, I, I have a, a a lot of favorites. I'd read it in Hebrew, but my Hebrew Bible's all the way over there. I don't want to stop. Let me just turn to chapter 42. Um, uh, there's more than one way to translate this verse. In chapter 42, well, verses 5 and 6, I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And that's a good, a good translation. The ESV has a note. You could translate that. I am comforted in dust and ashes. I think Job is saying both at the same time. And what I find so moving about that is Job is still uh, uh, on the ash heap, covered in sores. He's still alienated from his wife. He's still smarting from the accusations of his friends. Nothing external in his life has improved and yet he is he's able to see God for who God is he thought God was his persecutor it turns out God is his great champion and friend and he says i'm utterly comforted over everything i lost i'm absolutely fine with everything i went through and nothing external in his life has improved so i find that it it an essential part of a job like ordeal is God coming to you and comforting you with his own purpose before anything else in your life gets better. Hmm. And God in his all-sufficiency is able to do that for someone who uh, nursed a spouse through dementia, or had to bury one of their children, or has cancer, or whatever, all the different things that happen to us. God is able to draw that close to someone. Hmm.
0: Eric, thank you so much for uh, walking us through this uh, incredible biblical book, a book that all of us would do well to perhaps slow down and read more thoughtfully uh, in the future, Uh, but we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it, Matt. Thank you. That was Eric Ortland on the message of the book of Job. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Suffering Wisely and Well, The Grief of Job, in the grace of God. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review. That helps us spread the word about the show.